Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, we're going to collaborate with the Dr. Joe Show, of which I'm a co-host. This was an amazing episode, and I really wanted to share it with you in case you hadn't already heard it. Please enjoy. I wonder, Tom, if you could introduce our guest for tonight. Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we have Major General Greg Martin. Greg F. Martin, PhD, Major General, U.S. Army retired, served on active duty for 36 years until May 2015. He's a combat veteran, bipolar survivor, airborne ranger, engineer, qualified soldier, and army strategist. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal twice, the Bronze Star Medal, and the Combat Action Badge. He lives in Cocoa Beach, Florida, where he is writing, speaking, and sharing his story of battling bipolar disorder to help save lives and stop the stigma. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you very much. Welcome, Major General Martin. We are so honored to have you here tonight. And, you know, what what a story you bring. And, and, and you've now written a memoir, is that correct? Right yes. here? Yes. Yep, that's it. And, you know, bipolar general, my forever war with mental illness. Where do you want to start as we talk about this, General? Um, I guess we could start at the beginning. Let's do that. So the beginning um, of, so you you grew up basically in the same neighborhood I grew up, really, because, you know, I'm also from, from the Boston area uh, in the 1970s, where mental illness and all that stuff we were just sort of just pushing it aside didn't really want to acknowledge it what was going on with your life when we well in with my life um you know i unknowingly and i didn't realize this till just a couple of years ago working with some really expert psychiatrists unknowingly i was born with a bipolar brain and mm. a bipolar uh, genetic predisposition and it started off really low and moderate, a condition which is not a mental illness, but it's called hyperthymia. And it's a near continual state of mild mania, which gave me an enormous advantage in my life. It basically, my brain produced and distributed excess amounts of dopamine and other powerful chemicals. And it gave me a lift, a boost, uh, extra energy, drive, enthusiasm, and so forth. And that really carried me all the way into my 40s. And uh, what I didn't realize, though, was that it was inching ever closer to an actual bipolar onset, which hit at age 47. Um, but my, my whole life, I, I achieved, you know, really big things. Uh, you know, in high school, I was, you know, sort of the top student athlete leader, went to West Point. I uh, graduated near the top of my class, went to Army Ranger School, then went off in the Army in Germany ran marathons. I had a stretch where I ran seven marathons, um, all under three hours in a short period of time, including a 236, which is, you know, pretty fast. Wow. Um, you know, did a really good job at work. And then when the army gave me the chance to go to graduate school, they sent me to MIT and they said, okay, your mission is to get one master's degree in engineering. So I came out with two master's degrees, a PhD, plus I finished the army College of Command and Staff by um, by non-resident uh, form. And I, I share all that with you because 
that wasn't normal. That was a reflection of a bipolar brain. I was already by that point, probably halfway up the bipolar spectrum from very low level hyperthymia towards a real onset of bipolar. I mean, it was just extreme, you know, sort of not normal. And that's how my life was. But nobody ever thought, including me, oh, there's something wrong with this. It was, it was, it was great. I mean, it was success. It was achievement. It was all things that people wanted. And um, it, it wasn't until uh, I was in my 40s that I started getting closer and closer to the threshold of bipolar disorder. In a way to think about bipolar disorder, there's actually a theory called the kindling effect, where it starts with like how you light a fire, little twigs, bigger twigs, little sticks, bigger sticks. And every time there is a bipolar-like event in your life, it throws more sticks, more logs on it. And so by the time I was in my 40s, I mean, there was a pretty good fire going, but it hadn't erupted yet into real bipolar. And that really happened at age 47, 2003. I was a brigade commander in the Iraq war in charge of about 10,000 troops. And according to the VA and the Army Medical Department, who investigated my illness, uh, it was the stress, the thrill, the euphoria, the pressure of leading troops in combat that triggered my predisposition for bipolar disorder. And when we attacked from uh, Kuwait into Iraq, I went into mania. Didn't know it, had no clue, nobody else did, but my performance shot even higher. I mean, my energy levels were absolutely incredible. Um, my brain functioned better, faster, more focused than ever in my life. Felt like Superman, felt bulletproof, fearless on the battlefield, um, moved around, didn't need sleep. And that went on for most of my year in Iraq. But when I got back to Germany, I sunk into depression. And I went to the doctor several times over the next number of years when I was in depression and said, hey, there's something wrong with me. I'm usually high energy, uh, tons of enthusiasm and drive and interest. And I, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm depressed. I have no energy, no interest. I'm confused, indecisive, withdrawn. And all three times they said, oh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong. But there was something wrong. I had bipolar disorder. And then for most of the next 12 years, I was mostly in a state of mania. And thankfully, it was mostly a high-performing mania that enhanced my, my uh, performance. But by 2014, using the kindling effect, my bipolar had turned into a raging bonfire. And I went into full-blown mania, essentially a state of madness, insanity, went completely over the top, off the rails. And then people noticed there's something wrong and started sending anonymous reports up to my boss, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of all people, the top military officer. And he made he did some assessments and investigations and decided, hey, Martin's, Martin's got to go. And I also need to protect him as well as the university I was leading. And, um, and so he called me in and he said, hey, Greg, I, I love you like a brother. I got called into his office in the Pentagon. He said, and I, did, I thought I was going to get promoted. I was so manic. And uh, he said, Greg, I love you like a brother. You did an amazing job. I give you an A plus, but your time at National Defense University is over. You have until 5 p.m. today to resign or I'll fire you. And I'm ordering you to get a, a psychiatric evaluation this week. And I, so you would think maybe I'd be disappointed. 
No, I was so manic. I said, thank you, General. I appreciate it. God put me here to do big things and he's moving me somewhere else to do even more important things. Interestingly, nine years later, I think I'm doing the most important work of my life, which is mental health advocacy. But uh, then over the next four months, you know, what goes up must come down. I spiraled, then crashed into terrible, terrible depression. You know, so I was fired, retired, later hospitalized. And then I went through, I finally got diagnosed after three times they diagnosed me when I had mania and they said, you're okay. Um, and we can go into why they misdiagnosed. But then I went into two years of bipolar hell where I had hopeless, crippling depression, terrifying, frightening um, hallucinations and uh, psychosis. And then I, I was hospitalized. And then I finally pulled out of it after two years in hell where all I wanted to do was die, didn't even want to live, uh, had convinced myself my wife would be better off without me. And I was probably pretty close to suicide. Um, then I got prescribed lithium and lithium saved me. It turned my life around and my depression and psychosis vanished. And I started my journey of recovery. Uh, and that was seven years ago. That is a powerful story with all the, all the ups and downs of bipolar. Um, and it's remarkable that, that that it was not picked up on. Maybe it was part of the, the time. Yeah. So, you know, my understanding of bipolar disorder is um, you have those two different situations where you're either in a manic state or you're in a depressed state. But your story was that you were elevating in a, a mild mania to uh, to a higher level of mania. But my question was, at any point in your growth period, did you not experience that depressed feeling? Yes, I did. Um, and growing up, I had one period of depression when I first went off to college at the University of Maine. I sunk into, I did. I was doing really, really uh, poorly in school uh, my freshman year. That was before West Point. And I sunk into a pretty significant depression that lasted over a month. And now that I understand much more about bipolar disorder, I mean, that actually was a bipolar related depression. And then I did pull out of it and then go into, you know, a certain level of moderate mania. And so that happened, you know, when I was a teenager. And then I was mostly low level mania for the next couple of decades. And then when we hit, when we were in Iraq, I was mostly manic. But towards the end of the year, I started going into short dips of depression that would last anywhere from 12 to 24 hours. And then I'd bounce out of it again. But mm -hmm. during those short little depressions, and that's called uh, rapid cycling, where you you quickly go into depression and then you come back up and then you go back down. And um, but, you know, again, I was during those periods of depression, I was withdrawn. I didn't want to be around people. I was indecisive. I was confused. Um, you know, it, it was it was not good. And then when we got home from Iraq, I went into depression for about 10 months, really bad depression. Um, I was fortunate. It wasn't so bad that it kept me from functioning at my job. And, um, you know, one of the theories is, is that having you know, really structure and routine and discipline can really kind of keep the guardrails on 
for both mania and depression. And I think being in the army actually kind of helped me during that long period of depression. And then for the next 10 years, my, my bipolar disorder was unknown, unrecognized, undiagnosed, um, you know, untreated. And I started going into higher highs and lower lows. And so my depressions became more and more frequent, but I would still say I was probably about 80% manic versus only about 20% depressed until after I got fired, retired, and went into bipolar hell. Then I had two solid years of just absolutely horrible depression um, and combined with psychosis, delus delusions and hallucinations. Um, since I started taking lithium, I've had no depression for seven years, zero. I've had little blips up into what they call hypomania, which is a low level of mania. I've had you know, maybe a dozen or so short, um, relatively um, shallow blips up, but nothing that, that was in danger of, of turning into real mania. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether that first episode of depression was misunderstood because you're separated from home, from a familiar environment. You'd been a, a star student and now you're faced with this complete change in in the way you see yourself. I mean, you're failing at school. You're away from people that that care about you, that love you. I can understand how somebody may misinterpret that mm -hmm. as just being, you know, an adjustment component as opposed to a full blown depression due to bipolar. But then there was that the productivity part that is so interesting to me because certainly. You know, some of the most creative, influential people in the world have had bipolar. Right. It's when it's productive and helping other people that we dismiss that it could be a mania. Would you think that was part of the experience? Yes. I think that, you know, right from the beginning, from teenage years forward, you know, this predisposition for bipolar disorder, the living on the bipolar spectrum, having a bipolar brain, I think it just enhanced everything about my person. Um, you know, the way my mind worked, the way I could focus in on problems, solve problems, creativity. I was a super people person, an extrovert, always really looking, how can I help other people, you know, in high school, in college, in the army. Um, you know, one of my great um, attributes as an army leader was that I really spent a lot of time helping the soldiers and their families with personal problems, you know, medical issues, pay problems, you know, promotions. And so, I mean, that really, I think, um, was a hallmark of my success that this extra energy and drive for the most part went into positive pursuits. Um, I was a bit of a wild man partier in college. And after I got out of college, you know, before I got married, I, I was, you know, really out there. And I think that might've been a little bit of an expression of, you know, that, you know, slight mania. Um, and I was really, really into sports to a, you know, almost a, you know, an unusually high degree, um, you know, running, basketball, skiing, marathon running, triathlons, and so forth. But, um, but yeah, I, th I think, um, as you noted, many, many of the most successful, creative, productive people in history 
have been bipolar disorder or as they used to call it manic depressive right um so right. i think it i think it really helped me and 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 i want to i want to just throw this out to you general um i have spent a lot of time in my career trying to have people move away from the word disorder because disorder actually separates people into groups this group is okay this group is not this group i can trust not so sure i can trust that group that's disordered so in, in many ways we have contributed to the stigma by using this one word disorder bipolar disorder attention deficit disorder post-traumatic stress disorder as if you got your response to that trauma wrong so i call it a condition because it's an I am. I mean, for whatever reason, that was the best your brain could do. And then they made this small change. They added lithium. And that small change in the biological domain changed the response of those brain cells. Nothing was broken. It was just a state of being, a condition. Hmm. But the other part that I wonder is have you found now that you are on this sort of level do you miss the hypomania and the mania a little bit i miss the hypomania because the hypomania that only goes up to a modest level is it's the best drug in the world i mean you're high you feel phenomenal you can do anything you're so productive, you're happy, you love people, everything's wonderful. Um, so yes, I miss that. Uh, the danger of hypomania though, is that it can easily, given the right conditions, turn into mania. Now, mania was also an unbelievable drug high. And you know the things I did in a state of mania, and I mean the hallucinations and the you know the flying and just feeling, believing I was the smartest person in the world who held the key to world peace and and all that kind of stuff. That also is very addicting, but I don't miss it because you go into mania, you're gonna go into depression, and yeah. depression was the worst thing that I've ever experienced in my life. I, I mean, I had no idea how horrible being depressed, I mean, real depression. I had no idea how bad it was. And so it was so bad. I never want to go there. I don't want to put myself, my wife, my family, my friends, anybody through that again. So therefore, I will do, I'll do whatever it takes to keep from going into mania. Mm, yeah. What was it about that depression that was so, so difficult for you? Well, I had absolutely no hope mm -hmm. about anything. I lost all interest in pretty much everything. Um, everything that I used to love and be passionate about, didn't care about, didn't want to do it. About the most I could muster myself to do is to, you know, lay on my back and just stare into space endlessly ruminating about every mistake I had ever made in my life. Uh, and then when I would get agitated, I would, you know, dive on the floor, a hardwood floor, and bang my head and punch myself in the head and face. Meanwhile, all of this depression was infused with psychosis, where I had um, delusions and hallucinations of that I was being spied on, 
watched that people were plotting against me, that I was going to be arrested, convicted, put in jail. And then in jail, I had these horrible um, um, uh, psychotic thoughts that I would be beaten, stabbed to death, and then I would die face down on a, co a cold prison floor, gurgling in a pool of my own blood. And that went through my head constantly, constantly. And then the other one would be when I wasn't having that um, psychotic, what, what I now, uh, what I was told is a uh, passive suicidal ideation because it wasn't me killing myself, it was somebody else, so it was passive. But the other one would be that this invisible force would grab me and throw me underneath the wheels of a rapidly moving 18-wheeler truck. And I would see myself get ripped apart and my arms and legs and head would all bloody, would go flying off to the side of, of the road. And, and so I had these thoughts of death constantly um, and I just, I wanted to die. I didn't want to live. Um, I never thought I would get better. I had one friend who had a son who had bipolar disorder and he said, you will get better. There is hope. And he kept telling me you will, but I didn't believe him. Um, and I just had this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach that all these terrible things were going to happen, that it wasn't worth it to be alive, that every, the whole world would be better off if I was dead. And, and that is also part of that profound, deep limbic brain that nothing will ever change. And we don't can't access that prefrontal cortex that is involved in anticipating the future. The future just seems to be more here and now. That's one of the things that is the most difficult part about depression. Major General, how is it that through your career, this was never identified and, and truly addressed? Well, the military, like other organizations, I mean, you know, uh, the field of law and business, even politics, I mean, they prize people who produce and who get results and who have high energy and a lot of drive. And I had that for decades. So first off, they loved what they saw, they loved the results and so forth. And nobody digs deeper in questions like, hey, you know, what's behind this? Because it's good, it's success. Um, the, the second thing is, um, even when my behavior started to get kind of bizarre and, you know, was really definitely manic, People didn't around me didn't know what they were seeing. They were untrained in what are the basic symptoms of bipolar disorder. They, they didn't know, so they couldn't connect any dots. Um, the second thing is that oftentimes I would rotate every year or two to a new job. So by the time people maybe really started catching on that, wow, this guy's really out there, I moved to a new job and started all over again with a new crowd who didn't really know the difference. Um, the third thing is uh, people are intimidated to tell anybody that they think they have some sort of mental condition, whether it's a peer, a superior, or even, even a subordinate. People are kind of reluctant. It's an uncomfortable thing to say, hey, you know, I've been watching you and I'm seeing something unusual. Um, I think maybe you should get a, a mental health evaluation. It's uncomfortable for anybody, but especially to tell a two-star general. Uh, which is, you know, kind of a lot to ask of people. Um, the other thing is people liked me and they, they, I was fun to be around. I had a lot of enthusiasm. We had great units, really good esprit de corps. 
And people thought, wow, I mean, this guy's dynamic. I want to be on his team. And so the last thing they wanted to do was hurt me. So they didn't want to see me get labeled with, you know, a mental health problem and then, you know, maybe come out of my job and then they would get somebody that they didn't like. So that was part of it as well. But I think when you really come down to it, the biggest thing is I was successful. I had, there was a mask of success and it included, you know, two star, two stars on my shoulders. And so when people looked at me, no matter who they were, doctors, superiors, subordinates, they looked, they didn't see, here's a guy with bipolar, um, they saw success. And it never crossed their mind that this guy has, has serious issues and mental conditions that need to be treated. So I think those are kind of the main reasons and then finally, what blew the top off, though, was my full-blown mania where, you know, the fire, the kindling, the little kindling turned into a full-blown bonfire where I, I mean, you know, I erupted into just insane behavior, which I'd be happy to go into. But it's, yes. you know, classic mania. Um, and so I think that's the reason. Yeah. You know, throughout the book, I don't get any sense of anger. I mean, you're so forgiving to all these people who didn't get the diagnosis, who didn't do the right thing, who it's it's a wonderful character trait to, to have that forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, but as you look back, is there a wish that somebody had figured this out earlier? Yes, it, it, I, I think there was a point on the bipolar spectrum, um, a, a few, maybe several years before I went into full-blown mania and was fired, retired, hospitalized. I think there was a period a few years prior where my symptoms were really strong. I was doing, you know, crazy, bizarre, out of control things. And I think there was enough knowledge and enough clear symptoms that if people had been trained, um, they, they could have gotten me in to get help. And I could have gotten, you know, had an, a lithium intervention much earlier than 2016. And it would have saved me and my family from going through, you know, absolute hell for that two year period from 2014 to 2016. It could have prevented that. And, you know, the and it's more than just preventing that. I mean, I, I've had many doctors tell me that when I was in full-blown mania, I could easily have, have died of a heart attack, could have died of a stroke. And then when I went into that long period of depression with psychosis, I easily could have gone, I could have morphed from passive suicidal ideations to active, to a plan, to actually taking my own life. That easily could have happened. And, you know, that's a pretty high price to pay for people just, you know, not knowing what the, the basic uh, symptoms of bipolar are. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I certainly know what they are now, um, but I don't think I knew what they were really very well either. And, and when you were in that, that absolute manic phase, were you putting any of your soldiers at risk? Um. It's interesting. I went back when I was writing the book, I went back and interviewed everybody I could that worked for me for 
the entire time I was in the army. And um, it's very interesting from at the, at the lower levels, like when I was a lieutenant in my 20s, every response was, you're a great leader, you're super inspirational, you're motivational. Um, you know, you had a wild side, but, but it, was, it made it more fun. And then as I, I rose up the ranks until I got into my 30s and then my 40s in particular, people started saying, hey, you were inspirational, motivational, you're kind of a wild man, but we started seeing some bizarre behavior, some reckless behavior, some decision-making that didn't seem, um, it didn't seem right for a person of your rank and age and stature. And then when we got into Iraq, this is where people said, um, you know, I performed really, really well in combat on the battlefield and the mania helped me. I was pretty much fearless, felt bulletproof, felt like Superman. I, I could anticipate problems, focus in and solve them under fire, you know, like fast before anybody else knew there was a problem, I would already have it solved and we'd be moving on to the next thing. And, you know, these were a lot of them were life and death decisions where people's lives were on the line. But what people told me, they said, you know, you perform great. You're a really good guy. You're super motivational, but you became reckless on the battlefield. You started taking unnecessary risks. And, you know, it's not just that you put yourself at risk. And I got chewed out by my three-star boss um, on more than one occasion for being too far forward in too dangerous of a position where I could have been pretty easily killed or captured. And, uh, and he said, hey, you got to knock that off. I mean, you're a colonel. You're a brigade commander. My entire corps, 100,000 troops, is depending on doing all the engineer missions correctly on time and so forth. I can't afford to lose you. And so he chewed me out. And so what people told me, they said, you put not only yourself at risk, but the people that were with you, your driver, your force protection team, you know, your co communications guy, you know, we were in these little uh, cells that moved around the battlefield with two um, um, thin skinned, they weren't up armored Humvees. And I mean, there's bad guys all over the place and there were mines and improvised explosive devices and ambushes and all sorts of you know, danger. And, uh, and they said, you were, too too crazy you were too wild and you wanted to go see every soldier in your unit and there were ten thousand of them you wanted to see every mission and there were hundreds going on simultaneously you wanted to go all over iraq and it was too much and you put people at risk and besides we you're a, a colonel we could have used more of your time in the headquarters helping to manage and orchestrate and plan and give us guidance instead of being out, you know, running around on the battlefield all the time. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, one of the traits of really good combat leadership is that the commanders get out and see what's going on. But when you do that too much, like I did, you're not in the headquarters enough and your people don't get the guidance and the love and attention that they need. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just want to point out one observation because this is radio. So many of our folks, you know, may not see the, the video part, but the biggest smile general was when you used the word danger and that you were putting yourself in danger. I, I, I have not seen that smile on you yet as 
as then. So there's still that attraction of that, it sounds like. It's still that the the amazing invincibility, the superhuman component uh, that you were experiencing in that manic state. It's attractive in some ways. <laughs> well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, being in combat, uh, it, it's it's super dangerous and I'm anti-war. I'm, you know, really a peaceful person who is against warfare, really to almost totally. But um, it was so thrilling. And so I was so in a state of euphoria. I've never felt so high, alive, uh, important. Um, and I was, you know, by my leadership, you know, I know we really enabled the U.S. forces to get to Baghdad in record time because the engineers play such a key role with clearing the routes and putting in bridges and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy and I'm proud that I, that I and my, you know, terrific soldiers got to play that role and make a difference. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, there's something about it that is thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. It is part of our human condition, isn't it? To, to be able to face that degree of danger and come out the other side. A lot of people don't experience that. A lot of people get so anxious that they will just retreat. How do people get the book? Let's talk about that. Um, so the book, the easiest way to get it is to go to Amazon. But if but Amazon made a big mistake. They put a faulty link out there that says the book's not available. It's not available for three months, whatever. There's thousands of books in print, thousands. And so Amazon's got a, they've got a bad, bogus site. But if you get anything that says the book's not available or it's not available for like a, a month or two or three, just get off of it and go to another Amazon site that says the book is available. We can get it to you in three days. It's got a five-star rating. It's flagged as a um, number one bestseller. Um, you know, just go to the right site and, and get it there. Or another surefire way to get it is go to my website, www.bipolargeneral.com. And the landing page has got the correct Amazon link. It's got the uh, Barnes & Noble and it's got the Naval Institute Press, who are actually the publisher of the book. And so you can go to any one of those three and, you know, boom, you get it ordered and you get it fast. That's great. We'll put those links on our site. And I, I just appreciate the, the irony of a two-star general having a five-star book. I think that's great. <laughs> right? um, so the other part that I want to talk about is, you know, the, the fact that you have bipolar but still can be really successful. Can you just talk about that, that, that having a psychiatric condition doesn't mean you can't be successful? Yes. Um, I would say that by, my bipolar condition made me better and gave me more success than I otherwise would have had. And I really doubt I would have been a general officer without bipolar. I don't think I could have done it because what the bipolar condition gave me was extra energy, drive, enthusiasm, ability to laser focus on problems and solve them creatively and fast. Um, it, it, 
increased my extroversion. So I loved being around people and being a coach and a, uh, you know, a leader of the team. And all of those skills just really accelerated and enhanced my natural talents and abilities and made me a much better army leader. And I don't think I would have gone as high or been as successful were it not for my bipolar condition. Um, so that's the good side of the story. The bad side of the story is when bipolar goes too high, it will bring you down. I mean, bipolar is a, it is a deadly, deadly condition that is tremendously destructive, that ruins marriages, families, careers, finances, leads to addiction, homelessness, prison, suicide. So it's, it's really, really bad. And, you know, just something to think about is, and I was in that condition, I could have gone down the path of death. I was in it, I was on it, it could have happened. Um, but I got, thanks to my wife and friend, I got medical treatment. And, you know, it wasn't fast, it took them a while to get the right medication, but they finally got it. You know, they diagnosed me, they gave me lithium, and now my life is happy, healthy, purposeful. I mean, I love my life. I am alive. I'm living, you know, really great. Um, and so the choice is really the individuals to make. Um, if you do have a, a, a mental health condition, if you don't get help, you're going to probably go down the path of destruction. If you do get help, you, you're probably going to be happy, healthy, and, and live a great life. Yeah. And, and so many people don't want to get help because they think they'll be seen as broken and stigmatized. So that's the other thing that, that your book is really helping people is to get rid of that stigma that mental illness is somehow, you know, leaves you as a crippled, cursed human being. You're exactly right. The, the stigma and, you know, my mission, my life mission is sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma, promote recovery and save lives. The stigma is the biggest barrier to people getting help. And the stigma makes no sense. It's really based on ignorance. And the ignorance is that people think it's the person's fault for having the mental condition. So they look at a person, they say, it's your fault because you don't try hard enough. You don't have enough willpower. You lack character. You're a bad person. And we know scientifically that that's complete nonsense that you know, these mental conditions are physiologically real, just like diabetes, cancer, heart disease. It's just that they're, they're inside the, the cells and the wiring of the brain, which right. is our most complex organ, and you can't see any of it, right. but it's, it's real stuff. And right. so I think that, and Dr. Joe, I think you know, your show, anything that can chip away at and knock down this stigma that's based on ignorance, will be doing a serving a great, great purpose. And, you know, I've just one little analogy. Uh, seven, 50 years ago, breast cancer was stigmatized. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. And first lady, lady Betty Ford said, I have breast cancer. Here's the facts. Here's what I'm doing about it. And now 50 years later, women fighting breast cancer are it's seen as a heroic, noble cause. You know, you know, National Football League players wear pink shoes during, um, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I mean, I, th I think we need to move in that same way with uh, mental conditions. I could not agree more. And I think part of why we used to sort of blame people as if it was a moral issue was because then at least it couldn't happen to us because we were good people. 
And that wouldn't happen to a good person. And it is absolutely a, a distortion of the reality. Bipolar, folks, is one of the most treatable psychiatric conditions. It might be complicated treatment. We might need more than one medication. We might need more than one intervention, but it is treatable. Major General, can you talk a little bit about, if you would, about your journey in, in recovery? Sure. Um, so November of 2014, uh, four months after I got fired, told to retire and so forth, I finally got the right diagnosis. And I knew I was so depressed. I knew there was something wrong with me. I knew I was sick. And I went into the doctors in desperation. It was the same ones that had misdiagnosed me a few months earlier. I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm usually high energy, lots of enthusiasm. I have no interest, no energy, et cetera. And so they were able to kind of get some collateral information and put connect the dots. And they said, you have bipolar disorder type one with psychosis. And I said, thank you. Hmm. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate it because now we have, we know what the problem is and we can go about healing and recovering. Well, it took a while, two years of bipolar hell, you know, hospitalization, you know, being pretty close to suicide. And then finally, um, after probably a dozen different medications during that two-year period, uh, and none of them worked, all they made me do was uh, want to fall asleep and get groggy. So no success with any medications. Um, finally, I got the lithium. And then my um, depression and psychosis pretty much vanished within less than a week. And I started feeling like my old self, um, you know, pre-bipolar Greg Martin. And I felt, I felt good. My interest came back, my energy, liked being around people again, you know, my suicidal uh, thoughts went away. Um, and so that was seven years ago. And so what I would say about my journey of recovery, and in the book subtitle, I call it my forever war with mental illness. But the keys have been number one, you got to get your brain chemistry correct. You have to get the right balance inside the brain. And for me and most people, that's through medications. Um, and I take three main ones. Number one is lithium. Number two is lamictal. Number three is latuda. That's kind of the magic combination that, that seems to work for me. But so you have to have that. Number two, you, you should really work with a therapist, someone who is a trained expert in how to think about thinking, how to help help you identify your triggers, how to protect yourself, how to deal with complex um, thorny situations. That's number two. Number three is healthy living, um, you know, healthy diet, exercise, plenty of sleep, low stress, et cetera. So those are the first three, and those are necessary but not sufficient for a recovery that's built to last. I would, I, I say, I what I've had to do is anchor them into what I call the five P's. And the first three P's I got from Dr. Thomas Insel in his really good book called Healing. But um, the first P is purpose. Everybody has to develop a purpose for themselves. And I was adrift in my recovery because as an army leader, first thing you do is you say, what's the mission? Let's focus on the mission. Everything is, you know, uh, you look at it through the lens of a, a mission statement. So after I, f I finally figured out my mission statement was staring me in the face, sharing my bipolar story. And I do it through uh, speaking, writing, and conferring with people. So that purpose is critical. Uh, the second P is people. 
you know, having a network of fun, happy, energetic people that make you feel good and raise your spirits. And I and my wife, you know, we moved from New Hampshire to Florida in order to get the sun and the brightness and the warmth. And it was a great move. And we've, we worked hard to develop a really cool, fun network of friends that we dance with and party with and sing karaoke with and, you know, go to the gym together and stuff like that. Um, the third P is place. It's really important to live in a place that is going to enable you to do what you want to do and it makes you happy. And our big move was to come to Florida to get into the warmth. Uh, the fourth P is perseverance. I mean, this is hard. I mean, recovery from a mental condition of any type is hard work. There will be setbacks. There's bumps in the road. You may have re a relapse. Over half the people with bipolar have a bipolar relapse, which is often more serious than the initial onset. So you got to have perseverance, will to win, fighting spirit. And then fifth is what I call presence. And my youngest son, who has bipolar disorder, by the way, two of our three sons have bipolar disorder. Um, he, he came up with this idea of presence, which is being able to get outside of your own head and think about your own thinking. The fancy word is metacognition. And so a lot of times what's inside our own head is faulty. It's not true. It's incorrect. It can lead us astray. And if you can get out of your own head and think objectively about what's going on, a lot of times you can get back on the right track and avoid pitfalls. So those are really um, my steps or my formula for recovery. And then I think, you know, kind of infused into all this is just keeping a positive attitude and keeping hope alive that in helping other people and, you know, serving a cause bigger than self. And, um, you know, those are, that's kind of it. You know, th those are all really important and powerful steps. I I'm just wondering, you know, based on the I am, because the four domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. What small change can you recommend to our listeners based on our discussion tonight? I would say, first, have an attitude of gratitude, no matter what happens, be thankful, be grateful, because as bad as it may be, you know, and I haven't always lived by that. Believe me, when I was in bipolar hell, I didn't have much of an attitude of gratitude. I was mad at God, etc. But I think that that can change everything if you have this attitude of gratitude. And it changes your own thinking and perspective and spirit. And then it's contagious and it influences other people. And it, it really, what it does is I think this, you know, spirit of thanksgiving, it sparks joyfulness. And who doesn't like to be around joyful people? That's right. It's, right. it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's yeah. in, it's just makes you happy. Yeah. So those are a couple of things. And with that in mind, the second truth of the I am is everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through their IC domain. And you know, it has a different effect on your biological domain when you feel respected or disrespected. So the second truth, you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you wanna be. Major General Greg Martin, what kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be a really positive, upbeat, joyful, 
uh, thankful person that spreads happiness, joy, um, respect, and love uh, with other people and everywhere I go. Well, I can tell you, you certainly have accomplished that right here on the Dr. Joe Show. And we are so grateful. So one more time, Bipolar General, they can just get it on Amazon, but they've got to make sure that they get the correct link. Yes. And I mean, absolute 100% certainty is if they go to my website. Okay. Right. Even better. Yeah. One of the things that was also a theme through the book that we haven't even touched on was your relationship with God. And you, you referred to that a little bit now. Can we just spend a few minutes perhaps talking about that? Sure. I'm interested in how, how does it come into it? How does God, because I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I believe that there's something. But you had even just alluded to how angry you were with God as well at some point. So I'm just interested. How Tell us a bit about that, if you would. Sure. Um, so I was brought up cradle Catholic, Irish Catholic family, you know, near Boston, uh, and um, never really got into church very much. But I went because my parents made me. And I found much more spirituality and, and goodness by going out in the woods and going into nature and, you know, watching the sunset or sunrise um, or being around, you know, beautiful people. Um, and then I went off to uh, the University of Maine uh, when I was 18, and I went from high school hero to college zero. And I, I was taking a, you know, a very challenging engineer curriculum, and I didn't have good study habits because my high school was too easy. I, I got A's effortlessly. And so when I suddenly went to a, a, I mean, you know, Maine is a real university, and you're in big lecture halls, and, you know, there's nobody holding your hand. And suddenly I had all F's. And that's when I fell into this terrible depression. And, um, and then one day I was in my dorm room and knock, knock on the door in a, uh, a, a college uh, missionary evangelical group said, hey, um, uh, we'd like to talk to you about, you know, your life and eternal life and salvation and God. Would you be interested in, in any of that? And I said, yeah, sure. Sounds good. Come on in. And so these two guys came in and, uh, and they're like, well, do you do you do you know Jesus? And I said, Well, uh, I you know I think I do. I mean, I've heard of him. I've you know, I've been to church you know hundreds <laughs> of times. Um, do you know if you're going to heaven? I said, No, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. And they said, Well, we can show you the guaranteed path to you know know God, know Christ, and go to heaven. And are you interested in that? And I said, Yeah, sure. And you know these guys are beautiful. They've got they've taken all the complexities and all the unknowns in, in the universe and boiled it down to a little diagram on a sheet of paper that they are absolutely convinced is the formula and the secret that you're going to go to heaven. And, you know, if you say this prayer, the Holy Spirit will come into you and you'll be transformed and, and you're going to go to heaven no matter what you do. Even, even if you commit heinous crimes, you'll still go to heaven. And I said, wow, that's really cool. I never heard that before in the Catholic Church. And so, um, you know, so, you know, I did the, you know, the born again evangelical prayer. And amazingly, I, this was unbelievable. Uh, I came out of depression, like almost immediately. Hmm. And my brain just started working laser sharp. 
uh, they gave me a little, uh, like a half a dozen Bible verses to memorize. So I memorized them that night. Um, I cleaned my dorm room, which was a mess. I got, you know, new notebooks and got organized for class, started showing up for class early, taking copious notes, going to extra help. I basically brought my grades from F's to all A's and B's and made the Dean's list. And, you know, whether this was, um, you know, the Holy Spirit elevating me or it was mania or both. I, I mean, I don't know, but whatever it was, it sure worked. And um, and so I'm I so glad I'm so that. glad that you I'm so glad you said that they gave you some prayers as opposed to this little pill to, to try. So, <laughs> you know. right. so so the uh, so then I, I started hanging out with this group and they were really good people and they were fine people. They weren't devious. They weren't nasty. Um, and, and so I started going to Protestant church with them, which drove my parents crazy. They're like, well, what's wrong with Catholic? Um, and then I started going on like out, outdoor retreats and hikes and, and Bible studies. And that carried me all the way through that freshman year at University of Maine, where I ended up doing really well, Dean's List, et cetera, got into West Point. And I continued that evangelical track through my first couple of years at West Point until we started getting freedom and, um, you know, time to go off off base and stuff like that. And then like kind of my partying instincts took over and, you know, my evangelical uh, beliefs kind of sort of went in the back, you know, the back seat. But as an army officer, I kept this evangelical uh, fervor and belief and, um, you know, faith stayed alive very, very strongly. And I wasn't trying to proselytize or convert anybody because you just don't do that in the in the military. Uh, that's just totally inappropriate. It's against the rules, just like you don't talk about your politics with anybody, or at least you didn't used to. Um, but um, so I, I, can't, I kept this Protestant evangelical streak and it really helped me be a better officer because the basic principles of Christianity and most religions are essentially in, you know, they're in sync with being a good military officer, you know, character, ethics, honesty, hard work, take care of people, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and then when we, we had kids, my wife and I decided to bring them up in the Catholic church because we were both Catholic. So then I had a dual track, you know, the evangelical and the Catholic. And I basically kept that really till this very day. Um, and so when I went into full-blown mania, my religiosity went, became extreme. It was just insane. I was doing 30 or so relig major religious events per week, you know, Bible studies, prayer breakfast, discipleship training, church services, you name it, about 30 a week. Um, I saw the Holy Spirit descend multiple times. Um, I saw demons attack our house. And then I put Bibles and crosses and holy water. And I saw the demons fly and then do a U-turn and fly away. Um, and I, I really believe that God had put me in the Army and at National Defense University uh, as the smartest guy in the world, had the key to world peace. I was going to establish this um, entity called the Global Security University. And I was I thought I was like the Apostle Paul in the U.S. military, whose purpose was to transform the U.S. military. And I believe that 100 um, percent. I kind of went into darkness when I was in bipolar hell. I think 
I think religion was a little bit of a uh, life preserver that I would reach out of the mire and grab it. Um, but I wasn't very religious or spiritual. I was mad at God because I thought he had ruined my life. And then when I came out of it and started my road to recovery, I got back into both flavors of religion, evangelical and Catholic, with fervor. I mean, I was really fervent. I was go doing a lot of religious stuff again down here in Florida. But it kind of died out. I, my wife and I have both kind of gotten, I'd say, quite disillusioned with organized religion, which is a big change for both of us. We just we're just disillusioned with it. And, you know, the mixing of um, religion and politics is it's just it's not right. It's a turnoff. And, and we just decided, you know, you know, we love God. We're thankful. We want to help people love other people. But this these organized churches are just not for us. Yeah. And so we really have have kind of died off in our, um, you know, our religious faith, if you will. Right. But so, I mean, there is belief in god the spiritual component but it it really has been exploited uh, i hate to say it you know so that one religious group will fight another religious group as if we know what god wants you know right. i i wrote a song basically the chorus is you know it's all the same just a different name you know it, it really is that that part you know is powerful as well i had a friend rabbi who said you know if you think you know what god wants then your concept of god is too small right you know how are we meant to know that but right i i really appreciate the the connection that that you have right with with so many people and what you did for the country for all those soldiers that you empowered and valued and now what you what you're doing for so many people with bipolar and every other psychiatric condition so you know truly truly appreciate what you've been doing folks it's been a great show as always major general thank you so much for being here and for inspiring so many people i mean there was one one war that you may have fought before, but this one, I think, is is even bigger. We're going to do this all together. Thank you so much for your time. Folks, we'll Thank see you all sir. next week. Mark, Tom, see you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892, for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.